Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon, in Sound of Play 68, is Maya Santandrea. Hello, Leon. Hi. Did I say your name okay? I forgot to check. Yes, you did. That was that was excellent pronunciation. I'm, I'm very impressed, actually. Because, uh, yeah, it could, you know, could have gone, gone horribly wrong um, and we could have oh, got no, onto was... the wrong foot. That was fantastic. Thank you very much for having me, by the way. Thanks for joining me uh, from out of your busy schedule. And um, yeah, so uh, regular listeners may remember that uh, we played, we played one or two of your requests before. I can't remember what, certainly at least there were, there were two of them before. Yes. Okay. And, and uh, you signed up to our forum a while ago because you listened to the show Mm -hmm. Uh, and your forum name is the stunt lady. Uh, yes <laughs> and you know forum names are forum names so i didn't think that much of it um but uh i i think we interacted on twitter and so i saw your twitter bio and i noticed that part mm-hmm. of your twitter bio is an imdb page and uh or i may have googled you i'm not sure uh but either way i do have an imdb yeah i do yeah. have an imdb link on my twitter so yeah. that makes sense so there we go so then i i found out that you are indeed a stunt lady so uh from that yes. point on <laughs> as well as finding out that you're you know well into your video games and you love your games and your games music um so an obvious oh absolutely uh, <laughs> candidate to be a guest but also um when i put the shout out for for members of our community to come on who better to talk to than somebody with a very interesting and unusual job uh, I literally don't oh, yes, think I've absolutely. ever. I don't think I've ever spoken to a, a stunt person uh, before, and you know, much less. I know it's a, it's quite a male dominated industry, even less a stunt. Mm, that yeah, that that is certainly true, and I think you're you're probably not alone in that. Um, yeah, we're you know, even though the the stunt community, I would say it's it's a very tight knit group. You know, sure. people that are in you know that do stunts for a living, they tend to kind of come together and they sort of kind of stick with each other. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty small group of people. It's, it's not a huge number of of folks that actually do this. And, you know, with good reason, because there's certainly an element of danger to the job. There's a certain um, skill level that is expected. And, 
you know, it's it's definitely not for everybody. It's it's certainly a different world from um, acting or being behind the camera. So yeah, the nine um, to five. So that doesn't well. surprise. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. That. Yeah, but you keep uh, some unusual hours as well. Just uh, having to be there in the right light and and whatever else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah there there have been days where you know I've had to wake up at you know wake myself up at three o'clock in the morning and to be on set at four or you know whenever you know sometimes if you need to be in the makeup chair for a long time if they're turning you into a monster or a zombie it takes a while and then they need to have you on there and then I've done overnight shoots where um, my start time is sometime around six o'clock in the evening and we're there until four o'clock in the morning yeah so yeah we keep some unusual hours many many times well, I guess it mm-hmm. must be a lot of fun overall, and I definitely want to uh, talk to talk to you some more about, um, you know, mm-hmm. how you got into it and 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 all that sort of thing. But uh, oh, absolutely, yes. But let's uh, let's first talk about uh, the track we opened the show with, um, because first you found us initially because we're a video games thing, and uh, you basically you've been listening to us for a while, and so uh, I have. You're a games fan, obviously. I'm going to guess uh, that from that first pick, that being an American person you probably grew up mm. with the new nintendo entertainment system uh which seems I, to be yes, the normal I way mean, of things it that's true and also i mean i would say my gaming experience goes back even further i mean okay. when i say i've been i've been playing games for almost my entire life that yeah. is actually very accurate um my cousins when i was growing up had um had an atari and actually um uh, my cousin's dad had um i think he had actually a couple of like stand up uh, cabinet arcade games for oh, a wow. while before he sold them. So, um, so they were kind of really into games back in the day. Um, my stepfather was huge into computers. Like we always had a PC, like way before, um, personal home computers were really a widespread thing, but we, I, I almost can't remember a time when we yeah. didn't have one and didn't, didn't play games on it. So I had, you know, access to the Atari from my cousins. I had computer games um, at, at home when I was a kid. And then the Nintendo came out. And right. then I had a Game Boy. And then I got a Sega Genesis and a Super NES and, and uh, on and on until, you know, basically until I was in college where I, I took a little bit of a break from it for a while because I was busy studying. But, um, well but <laughs> yeah, so um, the Mega Man games, the Castlevania games, Zelda, uh, all of those sort of classic um, NES and, and late 80s, early 90s games, those were sort of my, my wheelhouse for a while because that was really what I grew up with. Um, so hence, hence the, the opening track of, of the Metal Man theme from Mega Man 2, which is one of my personal favorites in the entire line of of Mega Man games and um I think I I love this soundtrack overall I think this is one of the best video game soundtracks ever made it's it's so much fun um and part of the reason for that is I mean I think many listeners will probably already know this but um in Japan Mega Man was called Rockman he's meant to represent rock and roll music his counterpart is roll so together they're rock and roll um Proto Man's name in Japan is blues. Almost all of the major characters represent some form of music or have some kind of musical connotation to their names. Yeah. So Mega Man 2, for me, it just it just perfectly reflects that rock and roll sound mm. that I think those games were always going for. Um, so 
Metal Man in particular, like, this is such a fun level. I, I love this level so much. It's it's just the controls are so tight and it feels so satisfying to play it. Um, Metal Man is just has a great look. He's a fun robot master to to go up against and to beat him just feels so like feels so accomplished when you kind of take down the alpha dog mm. and his weapon upgrade is awesome it's one of the most powerful weapon upgrades you can get it works against so many different um enemies and so many different robot masters as well so it's like one of the best things to get straight off the bat um and this uh this particular track this the theme for metal man is is so heavy and fast paced it's got all of these layers to it and i just i think it really captures that sound that they were going for and I chose this um, this arrangement of of Metal Man's theme yeah. by Bit Brigade because mm. I think they really they do a great job of, of drawing out the complexity of the track. You clearly hear all of the different parts, and and I think especially the bass line comes really front and center in their arrangement of it, yeah. and it sounds fantastic. Um, uh, and for anybody that doesn't know of the the bit brigade they do these rock and metal arrangements of uh, many different classic um game soundtracks so they have the one for mega man which is mostly mega man 2 although they also throw in some tracks from mega man 3 as well uh -huh. um they have an album of castlevania songs they have metroid legend of zelda um so they're a lot of fun and they do these great rocking um arrangements of all these classic theme songs. So I definitely recommend checking them out for anyone who has not heard of them or isn't aware of them. They're proving really cool. Your, super. Proving your hardcore credentials. You you uh, said you have their uh, you have their record album, CD. Um, and uh, does that, have you also been to see them? Yes. Be, see them live? Anything like that? I have. Yes. Actually, um, the first time I ever heard of the Bit Brigade, they, um, they opened for the Proto Men. There was um, a concert here in Atlanta um, where, I, where I live. And the proto men were were playing at a very small club in town, and there's this little band opening for them called the Bit Brigade. I'd never heard of them before. Um, they're from Athens, Georgia, which is a town that's it's where um, it's where the University of Georgia is. It's yeah. kind of a very uh, big art scene, but sort of a smaller kind of sister city to Atlanta. It's where Ariana um, from famously. And yeah. yes, that that's true. Yes, they're they're from there as well. So they produce a lot of musicians, artists, um, actors, all, all kinds of artistic types. And um, I didn't know what they were going to do. They just started playing um, all of the music from Mega Man 2, right. and I wow. almost lost my mind yeah. right in the middle of the club because I was like, this is fantastic. This like, is this my music. so good. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, um, and they have um, one of their band members um, actually sits on the stage and plays Mega Man 2. All right unbelievably well like oh, i'm so envious of how yeah. good he is at getting through those games are tough that's you know, why like we haven't covered them on our other podcast yet oh, gosh <laughs> they are they're very very hard games and he just goes through it like it's nothing like yeah. perfectly goes through it never dies once and the band basically just plays the music the music live along with him playing the game which is projected you know on the back of the stage it was some of the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. It was just such a good show. So cool. I, you know, I went and I, I saw them, saw the Proto Men, had a great time at that show as well. Went home, immediately looked up Bit Brigade and immediately purchased their, um, their nice. Mega Man album. 
and I will probably collect more of their of their work um, in the future as well. But this one happens to be a personal favorite, so wonderful worked out quite well. Yeah, so a couple of uh, Sound of Play podcasts ago, we uh, featured the uh, guests, uh, Super Soul Bros, who are a a large jazz funk collective who are doing similar things, but um, as in playing video game music live, but obviously in a completely different genre. So I'm really happy to see this this proliferation of of people, you know, not necessarily... um, people that were involved in the originals but actual you know cover bands basically taking this music and touring it and playing it far and wide in their own in their own interpretation i think that's very very cool Mm. um completely unimaginable (laughs) yeah completely unimaginable when we grew up as well you know it would have just been and you know say you were saying um as do i you know going back as far as the atari vcs and games barely had music at that point because the vcs had a super simple uh unsophisticated sound chip that was capable of uh, a few beeps and a bit of white noise, but once the mm-hmm. once the Nintendo came along, uh, and over here it was more about the computers, the particularly the Commodore sixty four in the mid eighties. Right. Um. Uh. It, that was when we started realizing that that games music was you know actually a well certainly for us those of us who started making this podcast and I guess for you too, it was uh, it was something. Uh, you know, as much as the games themselves that you were kind of tapping into and and finding was, you know, inspiring you to keep on playing. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, sometimes these very tough games as well, and the music might loop and loop and loop, but it was part of the whole, you know, generating the urgency and the atmosphere that made you want to continue. Exactly. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things you guys always say on this program is like it's it's difficult to imagine a lot of these. Um, classic or, or even not the classic games, but just the games that you love, the games mm. that you adore playing. It's very difficult to separate the game from the music that goes along with it. They're they're so it's such an integral part of the whole experience. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, very much intertwined for many. And I know there are people out there who, um, you know, probably people who don't listen to this podcast who who kind of never really feel that same way. But but those of us who do really feel mm. it. And did you come from a, yes. any sort of musical background at all? Or was, was that was that oh. did you love other music other than games music? Or is this your your entire bag? I, I grew up with musical. I mean, my my dad used to play the guitar car quite a lot. He was in a band right. when he was younger. So there yeah. was kind of always music going on. And I was somewhat involved with the music program when I was when I was in school. I, I played in the school band for a little bit. So I had a slight appreciation of, of classical music. But, you know, the music I remember as a kid was more 80s pop music. It was rock and roll. Yeah, cool. It was heavy metal. Yeah. It was it was that kind of stuff. So and then later it became techno electronic music and you know independent artists you know rock alternative acts and things like that so mm-hmm. even though my my tastes may have shifted quite a bit over the years i always appreciate good game music super duper all right uh let's hear <laughs> from one of our uh forum members requesters of tunes uh, and this is from benderson who says i can't help but think that very few people played breath of fire 5 dragon quarter and those that did barely remember it it had little to do with the breath of fire games that came before it and in one sense its departure from form may have sunk the series 
Breath of Fire 6 is a mobile game arriving 13 years after Dragon Quarter, rated poorly in Japan and yet to appear in the US. Worse, the story makes only a very thin sense on one playthrough, multiple trips through the game, and frankly, abuse of the D-Counter SOL Restore, or Soul Restore, I don't know, I'm sorry, system, are required to see the whole tale. But Dragon Quarter's novel gameplay and post-apocalyptic subterranean setting struck a chord with me, and that chord might not have been nearly so resonant nor so memorable had it not been for Hitoshi Sakimoto's lengthy, moody, brilliant soundtrack. And this is Conquering the World. So that's from the uh, little played Breath of Fire 5, Dragon Quarter. Uh, I don't know about you, Maya. 
uh, I played some of the earlier Dragon uh, Dragon Quest. What am I saying? I'm thinking of Dragons Breath of Fire games, um, <laughs> Super Nintendo and uh, PS One uh, era. But um, yeah, I'd certainly lost track of the series by by the by the fifth one. Uh, JRPGs and Breath of Fire, your kind of thing. JRPGs. Certainly, and I, I think as as we get more into uh, some of my other requests, you'll yes. probably understand why. Um, this one is, is not familiar to me, though. I I stayed pretty well in the realm of like your your Final Fantasies, your Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross, and Square Enix, and those type country. of yeah, yeah. I was I was very deep in the in the Square games back in the day. So yeah, this one sure. is not familiar to me at all, actually. But um, that's no I'm problem. I'm interested they, to kind of go back and yeah. check it out. <laughs> if if you like um, 16-bit and 16-bit style JRPGs, um, the certainly the first, uh, I'd say probably Breath of Fire 2, which was a Super Nintendo game, and Breath of Fire 3, which was on the PlayStation 1 but looked like a Super Nintendo game, um, mm-hmm. certainly still worth checking out. I think um, 2 is available on the virtual console and 3 is available on PlayStation Network. So uh, it's ah, certainly, <laughs> certainly uh, options still there, but obviously, you know you can expect the usual um 40 to 60 hours of of uh, grind heavy gameplay but they were they were cute they had good music they uh, yes. were pretty you know so so if you're still if you're still into that and and you feel like they're a um you know uh unfinished business in in your uh, jrpg past then breath of fire certainly somewhere to to go um maybe along with some of the namco stuff like the Tales series and stuff like that if you if you haven't uh, oh absolutely yes i've i've actually been meaning to to take a look a closer look at at some of those games as well where i'm like oh i i know of this title i know of this series yeah. but there is so yeah, many I'm... of them i mean yeah. God, it, there's so many <laughs> not compatible with 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 a busy uh, adult life at all but uh but not i imagine usually but you squeeze some in though, I, I do, and yeah. a lot of times, like I somehow manage to squeeze these really gigantic epic, like a Dragon Age Inquisition, which I I've played a lot over the last year. Yeah. Um, that's a very long game. It's very involved. Probably mm. one of the most involved out of all the Bioware games up to this point. Yeah. And somehow I still manage to find time to to play it all the way through. And just I love being in that world so much. And yeah. The the flip side of that is also if um if there is an older game that's available for virtual console, especially if it's on the 3DS, that is a super easy way for me to take a game with me that I've been trying to um trying to get into or or rediscovering a little bit. Um and I can take it with me if we're slow, just kind of waiting to to go on set and waiting yeah. to get ready. So yeah. that's kind of a nice way to to revisit some of that those titles as well. One of the things I know about filmmaking, um, and I know you've, you know, we're, we're going to talk about it. I'm kind of, I'm keep, keeping the powder dry, but you've worked on some pretty huge, um, you know, well-known films, and I know that waiting around is a big part of it. Is that true for the stunt team as much as it is for the, you know, the kind of the the A-list actors and all that sort of stuff? It is. Um, it just, you know, sometimes depending on what the set is and depending on where it is. Um, it can take a while for the camera people and the grips and all the, you know, audio lighting and everything yeah, to get set up. It just, it's time consuming sometimes, especially if you're working on location and you have to, you know, like, okay, well, we have to lay a, a dolly track down for the camera, but we have to go over this uneven 
dirt and rocks and, and everything mm. else, you know, it's, it takes a while sometimes. So there, there are times when it's like, all right, we just have to wait for them to uh, quite literally turn the cameras around, but that's actually quite more involved than it sounds. It's not yeah. as easy as just, oh yeah, we just turn it around. Like, no, we have to move absolutely everything. You have to make sure the other side of the frame is completely clear of any, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, extraneous background stuff. You have to make sure that uh, everybody's in continuity. You have to, you know, fix Relight people's everything. hair and makeup and, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it just takes a while sometimes. So you have a Vita and a 3DS or one or both? Um, I actually, I have a 3DS. I don't have a, a Vita. I usually stick to, to my PlayStation just at home. Yeah. Um, but 3DS is, is fantastic. I, I love having that with me and, and it's been a great way for me to revisit some classics and take a look at some games. Like, um, I just picked up, um, um, a link between worlds, Wonderful. which I haven't actually started yet, but I'm, I'm excited to, to get into that because I love, um, a link to the past. It's one of my favorite Zelda games. Yeah, me too. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to, to pick this one up and I just got it maybe a week ago. It's so. a worthy successor. I say it's we haven't nice... got there in our, in our podcast series just yet, but, uh, but I think it's going to get, uh, mm. fairly glowing reviews when we get there. Um, yeah, but I, I would, I would recommend, even though the, the Vita is, you know, commercially not much of a thing anymore. Um, it's a great way of playing old JRPGs, so it might be worth hunting one down mm. <laughs> at some point because you can play all it the old be. PlayStation and I, and... stuff. Absolutely. And I've heard um, a lot of people kind of sing his praises for some of the more indie titles. Like I've, I've heard yeah. of a couple of gamers that, that really enjoy playing things like, like Binding of Isaac Absolutely. on the Vita. Yeah, totally. Spelunky, um, and Super Meat Boy, all that stuff. Yeah. Yep, Spelunky is another one. Yeah, some of those some of those kind of like little platformer indie indie type games. Yeah, so, one death, one death kind of games. There's where you something just to be have said for the go. Vita still. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. You you like have a quick go and then um and then yeah, and you can just put it into sleep mode mm-hmm. um, and all that sort of thing. So it's quite handy like that. But yeah, yeah. 3ds is definitely your friend exactly. while on set. Um, but yeah, the obviously yeah, while well, on set sh- and then while traveling too. <laughs> traveling as well, of course. Yeah, you must travel around a heck of a lot. I assume uh, international as well, mm. not just not just in the US. Haven't haven't broken out internationally yet, but uh, you never it's know. Bound hap- it's bound um, to happen. Usually, if I travel, it's <laughs> usually um, usually if I'm traveling, it's to um, places in the region. So I've worked in um, New Orleans, Louisiana before, and right. um, North and South Carolina. Um, yeah. uh, traveling to Savannah, Georgia, which is on the coast, is is quite a bit of a of a hike from. Atlanta. So if, if I ever have somebody that can help me drive and I'm not just driving myself, um, I'll definitely have something like that with me. Yeah. Pass the time. Good call. Yeah. Um, and now apologies in advance if this is a very boring question that you've had a million times before, but, um, going back to my childhood, one thing that certainly my mum always said to me was, uh, were words along the lines of, you know, don't go on fire, uh, don't jump off high things, uh, you know, don't, don't run out in front of traffic. <laughs> Generally, that kind of thing. Um, now, were your parents just, uh, they, they just they just had a wild, reckless disregard for your safety? Or was this something, was this your calling, your your career? Oh, in, what, when, did, when, when did it happen? How did it happen? Absolutely not. My parents were the same way. Like, no, you stay away from fire. You stay away from heights, <laughs> you know, and like, but... Um, but they were they were okay with me, you know, doing stuff in the water. So anytime I went swimming, like I would 
I've always been a strong swimmer, so they never really worried about that. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned to you that I just got scuba certified, which was a big kind of missing yeah. puzzle piece for me in, in my training. I was like, man, I'm a good swimmer. I love doing water stuff, and, and I think scuba diving is so much fun. Why have I not gotten certified yet? So I finally got that taken care of last weekend. Um, and in, in terms of everything else, it's it's like anything you, when you learn how to do it safely a lot of the you're minimizing a lot of the risk so once you learn all of the steps that it takes to set yourself on fire and you learn that you you are you yourself actually on fire that's not what's happening what you do is you have you know you're you're dressed in multiple layers of clothing yeah. um hopefully, um, to be super safe about it, you have um, some kind of undergarment that's made out of uh, Nomex or a flame retardant material yeah. um, that will help stop the spread of flames if it gets that far. But it shouldn't get that far because you've got layers of clothing over that and fire has it will eat through a layer of an accelerant first. So there's usually some kind of um, uh, some form of a, a flame accelerant that the fire has to burn through before yeah. it even starts burning through the clothing. So you have all these different layers of, <laughs> right. yeah. it does absolutely. And there's also, if, if you use a different type of um, accelerant, if you use a different type of gas, um, it, you know, it, it can actually make the flame look smokier or it can change the color of the flame. It can make it burn brighter. It can make it burn um, hotter. Um, so you kind of learn all the different ways that you can play around with that and still be safe about it it and then it still looks scary to to see it because it's still happening to you it's it's still a kind of frightening experience but when you minimize as much of the risk as possible then it's not quite as daunting to actually do it and you say okay this is not if if this hurts me i've done i've made a mistake or we have really not prepared correctly um that's usually what ends up happening is is something goes wrong or there's just some kind of human error that happened in the process. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Was there like a, isn't there like a, a sort of. Um, so there a, you have it. <laughs> a, no, no, that's, that's amazing. But I, I'm wondering, because I, I, I did a, a sort of, there's a, it's just like an, a you know, big grown up adventure playground thing over here yeah. called, called Go Ape. And I, and I went on that a few years ago and, and I went to do this sort of death slide thing into a into a cargo net on a tree opposite and and my brain was just saying don't let go because don't don't jump off of this tree even though you know you're attached to the wire because um all my sort of human instincts my survival instincts are saying don't let go don't let go so do you have this sort of moment like mm-hmm. you know don't set yourself on fire don't jump off a high thing you know that sort of thing do, do, do you can you actually sort um, of quell that in human instinct or animal that instinct. that can happen. I've I've actually seen it, yes, absolutely, and I've I've seen it happen in other people too. Where you know you you may not know that you know a, a fire is going to be um, is going to trigger something for, mm. for you yeah. until it kind of comes across your face and yeah. it's um, it's right there and and you can see it on all sides of you. Um, sometimes you you do have to experience it to just to learn where your comfort level is. But I think that's that's pretty important. You know, you won't know if you're afraid of heights or if you're uncomfortable with a certain height unless you go to that height and see what it looks like. 
your um, airbag that you're falling into that looked gigantic on the ground now yeah. about the size of when you're standing up, you know, like your your perspective changes. And and I think you know it's it's important to experience what that feels like, but also have the sound of mind to say, I'm okay with this. I can do this. Or you know what? I'm not okay with this, and this yeah. is not for me. And I am going to come down the the same way that I came up. I'm going to go back down the ladder instead of jumping into you know free falling into this airbag underneath me that I'm not entirely sure I'm going to be able to land on. Um, I you know I I think for myself and for other stunt people that I've that I've spoken to, they are much more appreciative of the person who will say you know what, I'm not comfortable with doing this. I think you're better off finding somebody else to do this. Or if we're in training, just saying, right. you know what, I'm comfortable going up to this height, but any higher than that, I'm not going to be okay. So I'm just going to work on my level of comfort. They That's would much really rather cool. see somebody say that than mm. try to be, than try to be a dare. Yeah, yeah. Then try to be a daredevil and go outside their comfort level and then end up hurting themselves no one wants to see somebody hurt themselves because no, then that'll put you out of work for a while and you have to take time to recover and so sure. people actually want you to be safe and they they appreciate it when you are you know um honest yeah. with yourself and honest with them and when what you're capable of doing and what you're comfortable with um it's the same thing with doing water stunts some people get very claustrophobic when they're submerged and they yeah. have nothing but water on all sides of them and yeah. your your sight is restricted you hear things differently you experience things differently um there's all this pressure on top of you and mm. around you um and you're either comfortable with that or you're not but you know it if you are going into something like that profession then absolutely fit you you need to find that out you need to find what your um what your limits are before you can say yes, I can do this job, or no, I can't. Hmm. I imagine, like, uh, I'm, so, I'm sure health and safety is a much. I don't know greater... if that answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it does. I imagine health, there's a much greater emphasis on health and safety um, in uh, today than there was, you know, in the days of Ben Hur and, and whatever else, and stunt people getting trampled on and and, and whatever else. Oh my but, goodness, yes. But I still imagine that um, you know you're aware as a performer, as an employee, um, whether it's by the studio or, or through an agency or whatever, that time is money and all that sort of thing. And you know that if you if you can't mm. do something, you're letting other people down and and da da da. So does does that pressure not play a part? Um, it can sometimes, and a lot of a lot of times that will come up when something changes. When we've we've rehearsed something and we're like, okay, this is this is how we know we're going to do it, and we have everything set up. This is how we rehearsed. We're good to go. And then at the last minute, they say, oh, actually, <laughs> we want to do it this way, or we want to change something. That makes it a much um, that kind of throws things off a little bit because then you have to rethink it and say, okay. They want to do it this way. How is that going to affect how we've been rehearsing this? How is this going to affect our performance and our execution of what it is that they want? Sometimes it's a minor change and it can be worked around and it's not really going to affect something. Sometimes it's a big deal, like they're going to put a huge obstruction in the way of somebody's fall. Or now instead of landing on the ground, you're landing on broken glass or something like that. Yeah. And it can, yes, it can, it can very quickly change the the level of risk. Again, you're you're managing the the um, the risk here. Um, 
so that that does happen and you know uh some people do kind of they say they they go up um some people do go up when they're when they um have to do something they're like uh, uh, they freeze or they just panic mm-hmm. or adrenaline starts kicking in and they're not thinking clearly that can happen it's it's mostly a matter of time and experience and just doing it over and over and over again until you can get that part of your brain to calm down and say, all right, that's okay. It's not going to, it's not a disaster. Um, but there have been times in the past where, you know, and, and I would say certainly in, in our community here, um, people have been on set and said, you know what, this doesn't look safe. I don't really like yeah. this. And they've pulled mm-hmm. somebody aside and said, can we not um, at least you know, slightly change this scenery or slight or do just make a, a minor change that will make it a little bit more safe mm. for this actor or this stunt person or this child actor or the mm. animals that are on this or whatever it happens to be, because there is more than one person that could be at risk. Um, so, it, it, but, it, but it is, it's very hard to, to be that person that steps forward and says, I feel like something's wrong. That, that can feel pretty daunting at times, but I think, um, at least here in Atlanta, um, productions have gotten a lot better about being um, transparent about that sort of thing and taking people's um, concerns seriously and really being willing to listen to listen to them and saying, "Okay, we we hear you. We know that you're you're concerned. Let's see if we can. It doesn't matter if this is going to take time and money. Let's figure out a way to make this safer so that everybody is." So that everybody feels a little bit more secure. That's um, good to so hear. they have been they've been a lot better about that lately. And it's not so much of a this person's a troublemaker and they're just saying this to stall the production. Like there's there's not a whole lot of that, especially if it comes from a stunt person. Um, yeah. The stunt coordinator and the stunt team in general are really like the go to people for safety when when you're on set. They're kind of like the default. If there's a safety issue, you go to the stunt coordinator and if he's not there, you go to, you know, the next person down the line. But stunts are usually kind of the, the vanguards of, of safety issues on set. So if someone from the stunt team mentions, eh, this doesn't quite look right, I'm a little bit concerned about this or that, um, they'll usually stop and say, okay, we, we need to figure this out. We need to make this safer. I'm glad to hear it. That's good to know. Uh, yeah. You're in safe Yes, it, it is. Yes. <laughs> right. Now, we were talking uh, about uh, the the Vita and uh, indie games and roguelikes. Um, now, I uh, imagine you've played this one on PC or PS4, but uh, your next pick is from the uh, highly rated Risk of Rain. Uh, and uh, in particular, obviously, we're talking about its soundtrack. So uh, th- this is I think this is I, I'm not I wasn't familiar with this track, but now I am. And I think it's absolutely superb. Um, so was it for you? Was mm. was it love of the soundtrack first and then the game or vice versa? Definitely love the soundtrack first. And I'm I'm going to be perfectly honest here. Um, I had a pretty frustrating time with Risk of Rain. I sure. think I think it's great. I think it's really wonderful. And I love the pixel art style. Mm. Um, I love all of the creature and monster designs. I think the environments are really great. But this was one of those games that made me go, eh, you know, maybe the roguelike games are not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I just get too easily distracted. And and a lot of times when I'm playing something like this where you have so many power-ups and so many uh, different things going on at the same time, 
I, I feel like I don't know where anything is. I don't know what's going on. And right. I get very overwhelmed very quickly. So I kind of, I was, you know, I played a little bit of this game. I was like, ah, I don't think this one is for me. However, the music is phenomenal and I absolutely love it. So even though I'm not crazy about the gameplay of Risk of Rain, I still think it's a, it's a good game just on its own. I th think it, I think it holds up. Mm. And the soundtrack definitely stood out for me. Um, so I think I, I mentioned this briefly um, uh, before, but uh, more recently, like these days, I find that I listen to a lot of electronic music and uh, Risk of Rain soundtrack fits right in line with my tastes. It was absolutely the kind of thing that I was looking for in the type of music I was listening to, you know, over the last few years. And um, I ended up buying the album separately from the game and mm. I'll I'll very often just listen to it by itself. Oh yeah. And I think it it absolutely holds up on its own outside of the game, outside of the context of the game. So um I I feel like that the the track that I've chosen is um uh 25.3 degrees north, 91.7 degrees east <laughs> and it's a pretty big departure from the the tone of of the rest of the album. The the rest of the soundtrack is very dark and bleak and, and harsh sounding. It's it's very in keeping with the environments in the game. So I thought this track was a nice contrast to that. It's um it's almost one of the only track on, on the entire album that's a little bit brighter and more melodic in tone. So I thought that would be kind of a nice way to show a little bit of a another side to this kind of um dark and very ominous uh, sounding um, album overall. Beautiful. Let's hear it. This is by uh, Chris, Chris Dudderloo.
have it 25.3 degrees north 91.7 degrees east i don't know what that refers to uh having not played the game but uh i'm sure it makes perfect sense uh and that's from risk of <laughs> rain um yeah so listeners uh in case i was going to say in case you've just tuned in but this is not a live broadcast uh this is a podcast but uh, <laughs> uh if you haven't been following uh, my guest maya is a, a stunt person and if you go to youtube now on your remote device or uh, or or your your pc whatever you go to uh, go to youtube and search for uh, the name of my guest maya santandre uh you should find a video which i think is called something like uh, double fire something uh something along that those lines oh. anyway there there is a video of you being on fire on on the internet yay <laughs> <laughs> so, fantastic yes i think i i know yeah. i know the one i know the one you're talking about that you was and a um, guy that was kind of a practice yeah um yes it's it's me and a, a very good friend of mine named andy rusk he's a is a great friend and, and a great stuntman uh here in this area and uh that was kind of a practice fire burn that we did several fire years burn, ago it's like a, a Tandem, tandem burn. Tandem um, fire burn. Which was That's a lot of the right language. Yeah. Tandem burn, yeah, and yeah. and it was a lot of fun to do. We were on a big property, so we weren't really um, at risk of setting anything else on fire. We had a yeah. lot of safety people around. We had a couple of fire extinguishers. We had people with buckets of water, wet wet blankets, and and whatnot. So um, yeah, we had proper equipment to put us out. But that that may have been one of the bigger burns I've ever done. Right. That one was that one was pretty big, yeah. and we stayed lit for a while, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And uh, it's a great example of, you know, that thing I was talking about earlier, the sort of, you know, where I'm looking at it and thinking, right, you know, this is somebody, you know, I'd never spoken to you before today, but we'd spoken online. I was aware of who you were. And I'm already (laughs) thinking, don't go on fire. Um, You know, it's kind of it's crazy. Um, So I'm still interested. Was there a point were you like, you know, an adrenaline junkie as a kid? Or was there a point where you just went, I know what I want to do. I want to, you know, be a crazy person. (laughs) Um, some might argue that I just have always been a crazy person and this does not, <laughs> not a huge departure from my personality. It was the but obvious that, career choice. That aside, um, I, it, I, it, it was a conscious choice. It's not something that I just kind of accidentally discovered. No, it was something no, that, right. um, <laughs> I, I did, um, I, I had, um, I'd been performing, like I'd done a, a, quite a lot of acting when I was, when I was a kid and, and in college I studied theater and film and and that kind of kind of restoked this love of um of film for me um just from performing and uh at some point i i decided you know i'm not i don't know if i'm much of an actor i don't really like reading lines and i get very nervous when i have to right. you know perform something even though i enjoy it it's very it's very nerve-wracking to kind of mm. give that the kind of a performance an actor gives but I, I'm athletic. I've got a little bit of martial arts training. I've done stage combat, and I really enjoy doing the action parts of of all of this. Duh! There's a whole like subsect yeah. of the filmmaking industry called stunts that is exactly that. It's performing. You still get to be on camera. You still get to uh, create this performance and be part of the action scenes. But you don't have to memorize any lines. You don't have to go through <laughs> all the acting stuff and and all you have to do is just, you know, imbi- like act out the tell the story through a fight or tell the story through um, your reaction to this traumatic um, experience. That's really what um, the whole point of of doing stunts is. You're um, you're recreating some kind of a an action or or traumatic um, event that's happening. Um, I'm not sure what that says about me, but um, I yeah. found myself kind of drawn to that. <laughs> like, it you makes know what? perfect sense that, now you put it that way. It's it's just it felt it felt like a much better fit is mm. basically what I'm saying. It felt like a better fit for me than than something like acting or directing or, or something like that. Although I haven't completely ruled out acting somewhere in or, or directing rather, I should say, um, somewhere right. in my in my future. Um, that that holds a, a kind of appeal to me and. Uh, a lot of stunt people, as they get older, find themselves in either stunt coordinating positions or they go on to become directors or second yeah. unit directors. And I, I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an impossible feat anymore. As no, of as not. more women are are starting to get into those kinds of roles, um, where yeah. a few years ago I might have. A woman being a second unit director, what? That's crazy. crazy. Not yeah. not so crazy any not such no. a crazy idea anymore because more and more of them are doing it, which is great. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But anyway, when when I so I really I studied um, you know people that do stunts for a living. I kind of read about different uh, different veteran stunt people's stories. Kind of heard about what they did to get into it, and um, basically just learned as much as I could started training and um, basically ended up here because there was um, a good 
bit of work coming into the area and um, there weren't a lot of people here at that time when, when I first came to Atlanta um, trying to, to pursue this career. Um, and I was kind of, it was, it was a good place to be in the right time because mm. there was a good tax incentive program here. The state was just starting to really take advantage of it. And um, I think by the time I moved here, gosh, now five years ago, um, I think uh, their their biggest claim to fame was definitely the Walking Dead. That was that was a huge huge deal for them, and I believe yeah. it had just finished. They just finished um, filming the first season of Walking Dead. By the time I arrived, they were starting to to gear up for season two. Mm. Um, so that sort of put Georgia on the map of this like filmmaking center where it really hadn't existed before. No one really thought of it as as being this place where like, what they film, like they make movies and television in Georgia, not since like deliverance. Right. I mean, like nobody <laughs> yeah, really thought sure. of it as a, as a place where that, where that happened, except for a couple here and there, like maybe a deliverance, maybe, um, um, was Forrest Gump filmed here at some point. I don't know, but, mm. but something like that, smaller, smaller titles that came around every, every once in a while, not these big, you know, there's a there's a whole Marvel studio here now. That was almost uh, unheard of, like, like completely unforeseen five years ago. Um, so definitely a little bit of being in the right place at the right time, but a lot of learning about what I was getting into and researching the heck out of it and making sure that it was something that I I was I thought I was capable of and working my butt off and training my butt off and just uh, you have to be uh, somewhat tenacious if you're in this in this industry and you have to just kind of take take the rejections as they come and say you know what that's okay i will i will try again and i will try to get on the next thing and and i'll try to meet this this person again and even if i didn't have a good experience with them the first time maybe the next time it'll be better and mm. they'll give me um they'll give me more of a chance the next time i see them um Sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes it doesn't. But you have to keep trying, and you have to you have to be a bit determined to uh, to to keep going with it. And um, yeah, of course. Yeah, it it takes a, it takes a certain personality. You do kind of have to develop a, a little bit of a thicker skin, which I I wouldn't say that I have, but I try my darndest to to be thick skinned hmm. and to not let those things get to me. And it it does you do tend to over time just kind of take them, take the the punches as they come and just kind of go with it and say, all right, it's it, the next time will be better. Don't worry about this one. Just even if it, even if it was something that you like, Oh man, I really screwed up that job. Like just own it. Just say, yes, it could have been better. I could have done better. I will do mm. better next time and try to stay positive about it and move on. Great advice for life in general, and so. uh, and talking of the Walking Dead, that is one of the shows you've yeah, worked on. Uh, you've done well, according to IMDb, you've done four or five episodes, but the first few of which were you didn't mm -hmm. have a name credit on because I guess you have to be you have to have made it made it to a certain um, status. They, but you've um, been a stunt zombie, I know. One yeah, of the main television. Ones. Um, yeah, and and for and for television. Um, the credits work very differently from film. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, television uh, producers usually like 
usually they'll give the stunt coordinator a credit at some yeah. point at the end right. of the program, and that's usually it. Typically, they don't um, credit the stunts at all, and that's just that's just one of those things where television just doesn't do it. I don't know why. Because <laughs> credits know how are they, they have to go things. they have to go past really really quickly to get the commercials on. I think is the main. Is they the main do they do, and it's and it's all up to the producers. It's all up to what the producers um, want to put in in there and what um, what certain. Um, uh, unions have as their their rights for how people are credited. It's a totally different thing for actors that I do not understand at, at all. But um, yeah. But all uh, you know, just speaking from experience, um, in television, it's usually the stunt coordinator gets a credit, and it's usually way at the end, and that's it, and then they're done. Um, yeah. So no. Nobody ever gets credited in the stunt department for Walking Dead, unfortunately. Um, but but that's nothing. That's not just them. It's it's no, the, sure. that's the norm for pretty much every major television show. So I'm not no, I'm not absolutely. harping on Walking Dead. Every no, other television absolutely. program does it. No, and a lot um, of um, yeah, a lot and of... Uh, and the and Walking Dead has has been very good to me over the years. Um, it's mm. a it's a fun show to work on. It's hard though. Um, they usually pull very long hours. Um, and it's, uh, it can be very grueling if you're, you know, doing stunts in, in tons of makeup and the, and the big prosthetic pieces. It's a very, it's a pretty demanding job, mm. um, for anybody that works on that show. It's a, it's, um, um, it's very challenging, but also because of that, it can also be very rewarding at the end of the day when you finally take off all of the makeup and the prosthetics and the raggedy clothing and say, oh, you know, we really we really nailed that shot. Like we really made something cool. Like this is going to look great. Um, so it's, it's a very gratifying feeling as well. Um, uh, this season, the, the episode that I'm, that it's actually cu still currently filming. So I can't really talk about sure. it that much, yeah. but, um, this was the first time that I actually wasn't a zombie and I doubled one of the actors yeah. in the show. So that was mm. a very different, experience for me um and i believe it's coming up on episode five yep according so, to imdb 7.5 listeners, so listeners of the show if it, if it hasn't aired already which it may or may not i can't no, it remember hasn't. Um, no. where they'll be no. by the time this airs no but, we're on um, we're on two but uh, uh yeah yeah that's right uh, you're right because this yeah. one that's just going to yeah. come out tonight actually. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but one I know that uh, you did do, cause I, re I read an interview. Um, you, there's a, there's a, there's a Walker kill early, uh, in, uh, relatively early in Michonne's, uh, life on the show where she strangles a zombie, uh, with a telephone cord, I think it is, uh, is that right? Mm -hmm. And that was you. Yeah. Uh, and you, 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 right. basically, yeah, that... you get decapitated mm -hmm. and drop from a window <laughs> effectively. Um, it was, uh, I was, around a, the a post actually it was from the yeah, set was okay, uh yeah. it was like this rundown motel almost and so it was on yeah. like the porch and the post holding up the the little roof there so she kind of tied my head That's around it, it yeah, yeah and squeezed my neck so hard that, that uh, ostensibly my my head fell off which was a really fun scene to film it took yeah. a very long time <laughs> but uh but it was really cool it was a lot of fun to to work on that um that specific scene in that episode and you're right there in the foreground you know you are front of frame looking your very best mm -hmm. i'm sure uh, as a as a hideous oh my uh, God. half rock <laughs> 
those contact lenses, I'm sure, are, Lugging are, are a all delight to wear. all of the best zombie faces that I can. Yeah, so there is a bit of acting in, in stunt work, isn't there? It's not, it's not completely without acting absolutely. skill. Yeah, for sure. There absolutely is. And I would, and like, like, a, like a good acting scene, like something that drives a good drama or even a good comedy, I would say, like something that drives a good actor-heavy scene is where you understand the motivations behind all the characters. There's mm. some kind of underlying meaning, but like they're not just reciting their lines. They're not just saying things just to say it. There's a meaning. There's some kind of an intent behind the words and behind what they're doing and, and saying on screen. It's no different from stunts. We're just using a fight to tell that story or we're um, flying through the air or, you know, trying yeah. to escape um, a burning building or um, escaping, a, you know, a car that's been submerged in water or something like that. We're simply using the action part of it to tell the same kind of thing. So like an acting scene, if a fight or an action sequence feels like it is unmotivated and feels like there is no intention or no drive behind it, it's it's really kind of of uninteresting um a good fight scene um i like to bring up this example a lot um uh one of my favorite films to come out in the past few years was um was mad max fury road mm. and in the middle of all of this amazing uh driving all this amazing um you know road work and and motorcycle stunts and all this all this insane stuff going on um right in the middle of the film there's this absolutely fantastic fight scene that mm. is chock full of of motivation like you you understand what every character wants and what every mm. character needs in that scene you know exactly what they're going for it's motivated it's fast-paced it feels real even though you know it's completely staged and it's completely choreographed it feels like a real fight and it feels real because it has that motivation behind it and because the the actors and the and the uh, fight choreographer and the stunt people and everybody had that drive and that intention behind it and when it's there it works so beautifully and it does tell a story so um you know i would yes yeah, so you're absolutely right in that um there is quite a bit of acting there is quite a bit of, of performance and there's the reason why we're called stunt performers and uh that yeah. that is a, a big aspect of it um if you don't have, uh, if there's no motivation, then there's no story. And, and that's pretty boring to watch. Too right. Absolutely. All right. Let's break off uh, temporarily for another track. Uh, this is requested by Colin Alonso at canarince.com slash forum, who says, I'm currently playing through Rhythm Paradise Remix. And given that it's kind of a best of, I'm posting a track from Beat the Beat Rhythm Paradise, a.k.a. Rhythm Heaven Fever. Flock Step is a level that involves a lot of birds marching in unison. It has a loud and cheery tune that just keeps going, and much like the rest of the Riven, Rhythm Heaven or Paradise games, just puts a big smile on my face. So this is Tsunku and Flock Step.
that's from Mina no Rhythm Tengoku, which I think means something like Everybody's Rhythm Heaven. Um, or we know it over here as uh, <laughs> Rhythm Heaven Fever, Rhythm Paradise. Uh, you know the series. Anyway, the this uh, this kind of um, best of uh, remixed uh, compilation is available now on 3DS, as you know, in all territories. And uh, we covered the Rhythm Heaven... Rhythm... Why can't I speak? Rhythm Heaven series up to the point that we recorded <laughs> the podcast back in Kane and Rince, uh, our, our other podcast. I'm sure you're aware of it. Kane and Rince podcast podcast issue number 45 um and uh, we like that game a lot and it's very silly and a lot of fun and i recommend that you get that for your 3ds listeners and and you my if you fancy something fun to play on set are you do you are you are you good with the rhythm stuff actually um i don't play a lot of these types of games i think the last related to it would have been uh um, the uh crypt of the necrodancer Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, we if know. If you're familiar yeah. with that one, it kind of we yeah, are. the the combat is sort of like you have to stay on the on the rhythm and on the beat as you go through. Yeah, it's very clever. Um, the levels. Um, so I'm not sure if this. Yeah, I'm not sure if this kind of falls in line with something like that. Not exactly. But, um, no, similar but different. But Necrodancer yeah. was a lot of fun, and uh, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yet another one to put on the list of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's that's what happens when you when you hang around with us. You just get more and more games to add to your list of games that you want to play. That's the plan. Oh, right? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's just that's just what happens. So another game with a musical theme, uh, although it's not a rhythm game, was uh, Toe Jam and Earl, and its sequel in particular, Toe Jam and Earl in Panic on Planet Funkatron, um, which I do remember well. I played this back in the early 90s when it came out, and I guess you did too, Maya. You've brought us uh, the twangiest, funkiest piece of oh, music you could find. I, gosh, this game is so fantastic. I played this game a lot when I was a kid, um, and I think... You know, looking back on it, um, especially, I guess you could say this of the original Toe Jam and Earl 2, but especially Panic on Funkatron, if there ever was a game that perfectly captured the essence of the early 90s, it yeah. has to be Panic on Funkatron. Um, sure. It's like the style, the the bright, poppy look of the game, the humor. I mean, you could almost, you could almost call this a time, time capsule game. Mm. I mean, everything in it from... The, the art style, this very cartoony, bubbly art style, right down to the, the heavy bass lapping in the music, um, and particularly in this in this track too, just screams the early 90s. Um, and, you know, as a kid, I, I loved all of that. I loved this, the quirky silliness of it, the comedy in it. Um, I love colorful environments. Um, and the the enemies in the game being these, like, obnoxious destructive humans like these humans, kind of yeah. mostly i think they're mostly they're mostly american stereotypes like these just That's completely obnoxious pe people the enemies in the game that i thought that was hilarious it just cracked me up so much i remember thinking it's, it's just so funny and even uh toe gem and earl um their reactions to the enemies like there was um there are enemies that have they're like these annoying tourists that go around Around just taking pictures of everything and yeah. if you don't cover your eyes to um um when they flash their cameras they'll just stand there for a couple of minutes completely stunned like they're temporarily blinded and just blink for a couple of seconds that used to crack me up i thought that mm. was so funny um and it's a it's a really it's a very silly game but i used to have so much 
fun with this. Um, and um, if please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I if I'm remembering correctly, um, mm -hmm. aside from the sort of NBA and basketball games, this is one of the first games that I can remember having a soundtrack that heavily was influenced by funk and hip hop music. Um, I yeah, don't think there yeah. were a lot of games that really had that sort of sound up until that point. No, you it know, was quite, quite Aside from some of the sports funky. games, like some of the NBA. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and then, right. um, and this was pretty, this was pretty, um, I always thought this was kind of a, a significant thing. Like even as a kid, I, I thought like, you know, I, I don't know how much of, of a thing that this was in the UK, but to give a little context around the time that this game came out in the, in the U S there was this huge backlash against almost any form of hip hop music, especially um, what was being called gangster rap at that time. Mm. So to yeah. have a game like this, that's so, you know, you look at the cover even, and it's, obviously very meant to be for kids, obviously very kid friendly to yeah. have something like this that was marketed towards kids that was so silly and goofy and over the top to feature an entirely funk hip hop soundtrack. That was a pretty big deal at that time, especially because it was, um, it's so upbeat. It's so bouncy. It has such a positive vibe to it. Um, mm. I, I thought that was always a, a pretty, um, a significant distinction for this, um, for both of the, the Toe Jam Neural games, but especially this one. Um, but overall, it's just such a fun soundtrack. It's so fun to listen to. And um, uh, so the, the track that I've chosen is Luanda's Love, which is featured pretty heavily throughout the game. And um, it's, it just embodies that whole, like that funky kind of bouncy uh, hip hop feel to it. It's, it's really cool, and um, if uh, listeners, if they enjoy this uh, this particular track, um, kind of going along with um, Bit Brigade and the uh, Super Soul Bros, etc., um, there's a band called The One Ups that mm -hmm. people are probably pretty familiar with. They do a really great funk um, rendition of of this song that I highly recommend. Nice. It's from the, their Intergalactic Redux album. And it sounds great. It's really cool. But I kind of wanted to feature the original sort of in its uh, uh, just kind of to bring that front and center. But just kind of as a side note for future listening, um, the one ups do a great version of Luanda's Love that is 100% funk and it's really fun to listen to.
So yeah, yeah. Luanda's <laughs> Love by John Baker. Uh, and yes, that's from uh, Toe Jam and Earl in Panic on Funkatron. You can buy, uh, listeners, those of you who still have an Xbox 360 set up, there is a double pack download by M2 of both the original Toe Jam and Earl and its sequel. Um, but it's not currently backwards compatible on Xbox One, unlike the rest of that series. Um, so it could still happen, but uh, but I recommend anyway. Um, again, another pair of games game or games that we might cover one day on cane and rinse uh it's probably they're both on our list of 1400 odd titles uh another one oh, of which, gosh yeah yeah it's we've got about 30 years worth at, at the last and i'm i'm in my mid 40s now so we'll see start yeah. training somebody now to pick up the torch to carry that, on it's like that's a, wow yeah my legacy yeah, my my protege yeah yeah it's not a bad idea <laughs> so many <laughs> Uh, so many and like and and on top of all of the great games of the past there are so many great games coming out now that you know i know you're like yeah. oh well we'll wait for a year to to see if it holds up and exactly. gosh it's just like it's never ending. you, you yeah. have a, a never-ending well of uh, of material to pull from so indeed yeah it's it's a pleasure to try, but we are basically always uh, to use a, a British phrase. I think pissing in the wind, uh, but um, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Another game that I'm sure is on the list is uh, Kid Icarus Uprising, uh, and Kraken Unleashed has requested a piece from that game, and what a wonderful piece it is! Kraken Unleashed says this track comes from one of my favourite levels of Kid Icarus Uprising, a game I genuinely love never having issues with cramping or whatnot that plagued others, and they really did, I think, partially because the whole level is basically one big Star Wars homage, basically starting off the whole That's No Moon scene before diving straight into a trench run. You can even hear the shift in tones of the level in the music as this goes over the on-rails portion of the game. At around the one-minute mark, you can hear the dialogue-heavy opening of changing to the main action as the intensity ramps up with a John Williams-esque melody in the middle to complete the Star Wars comparison. So yeah, this is by the legendary Yuzo Koshiro, along with Takahiro Nishi, and this is The Lunar Sanctum. <laughs>
an amazing piece there. Uh, absolutely lavish for a little old 3DS. Yes. Did you play oh, that it one? It really is. You know, um, I think it's... Um, I did play a little bit of, of this game, actually, on the, on 3DS. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, Kraken Unleashed said about it being a big Star Wars homage, mm. this track sounds very John Williams. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's very appropriate to make that uh, that analogy because it it does sound like it could have been an, as part of a John Williams score at some point, like some yeah. kind of lost uh, some kind of lost arrangement somewhere in his lexicon. For sure. So um, back to your uh, your burgeoning career. So your first uh, credit on the IMDb was a mere four years ago. Uh, so you you I mean four years is a long time to do a lot of stunts, but you've already. Um, added as well as sort of th some major series like uh, Sleepy Hollow and uh, The Walking Dead, as we said, The Vampire Diaries. You've also done multiple episodes of The Originals and Devious mm. Maids. Um, people will see uh, if they if they look you up. Uh, one of your earliest credits was on Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, uh, which not necessarily oh, people yes. think of as a stunt-heavy oh. movie. <laughs> No, but there is that gigantic fight scene in, you know, like it's kind of a callback to the original Anchorman. And so punching, um, punching. I actually never. I, yeah, exactly. And they they went just uh, completely above and beyond what the original did and just made it so over the top. Um, yeah. I worked on I worked on that scene on Anchorman 2 for a week. It was a full week of doing wow. nothing but but fights and and filming all the different segments of this fight scene. So for me, like not only was it a, a big job, this was a, a really long time to be to be on something like this. It's basically just one scene in the movie, but it took yeah, a long yeah. time to film all the different aspects of it. But it was very educational to see all the different, um, like every uh, different comedy beat that they wanted to get into the, yeah. um, into this scene and to see all the different, um, the different components to it and how they, it was just like, it was a mind blowing, um, experience for me just to watch all of it come together. Um, right. because they had all these weird things with like ghosts being on the battlefield. And how do you, how do you set up a, a scene where there's a ghost just going around and there's people running around with like hockey sticks. And there's mm -hmm. one day where like, Hey, we've got, um, We've got uh, Jim Carrey or we've got uh, Liam Neeson for one day of shooting and we right. absolutely have to get their shot in of this course. scene. Actually, um, thinking back on it now, there was actually a scene we, we did. We, same situation. They had Will Smith for like one or two days right. and they, they were like, we've got to we got to film the, the this specific section of this fight scene before everything else. So, so we actually even had a, a, an additional one or two days before we did the big um, week-long um, filming of that fight scene specifically for him because that was the only time that they could fit him into their schedule. Yeah, of course. Because um, he was so busy doing other things. And I was like, wow, you know, like that was the first time I really thought of it that way. Like, my gosh, they have to juggle so many different things the and so many different people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was such a yeah, it was such a huge um a feat of coordinating um people and and wrangling all, and gosh, dozens of extras and like all sorts mm. of explosions and helicopters and, and dirt bikes and all all sorts of stuff and like laser guns and things like 
I, I can't believe they were able to to keep everything together. It was it was really amazing to see, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun to work on. Um, so, um, yeah. I've I've been told that as a as a whole, Anchorman two didn't hold up quite as well as as the first one. Sure. Um, I actually never watched it all the way through, but um, but I, I kind of in a lot of ways like eh, I don't really care because that scene was no, just right. so much uh, yeah. so great and so much fun to work on. Um, and I learned quite a bit from from being on that set and just being able to see everybody else work. And, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible when you're standing there and, uh, you know, Will Ferrell is, you know, like some 10 feet away from you and mm. just making up things like on the spot, just coming up yeah. with these, these crazy, un, like just completely nonsensical over the top lines. And they're so funny and you have to stand there and pretend like you're completely straight faced and it does not yeah, yeah. affect you at all. It is so, so hard. I can't tell you. That's definitely we, part we of your acting of, arsenal. Uh, oh, just gosh. not not giving away your reactions to to the stuff that's going on around exactly. you. Exactly. It was it was so hard to not laugh at their at their lines because these are some of the they had this collection of some of the funniest people you've ever seen. Mm. And um I would say uh, Will Ferrell was definitely the the biggest uh, the biggest challenge when it came to that because he it was he would just ad lib some of the most off the wall things and it was hysterical. But even in, uh, kind of alongside that was uh, Steve Carell, who yeah. is kind of the the straight man in this in this scene, and all he's doing is just walking around. I don't know how, but completely straight faced, completely serious the entire time and all of this chaos is going around him and he's just like walking around with this axe or something. It was just like, I, I don't know how he, I don't know how he's hmm. doing it. And even just watching hmm. him and his expression and his, his way of being that straight man and being the one that's very stoic amidst all this um, riot going on around him. Even that is, is funny just to watch him do it. And I can't laugh. <laughs> so no, right. gosh, that was, that was very, very difficult, but gosh, what a good time. That was really cool. So other, uh, other projects I know you've worked on two or three hunger games, uh, furious seven, uh, and perhaps, uh, one that many of our listeners will be familiar with is captain America, civil war, the most recent, um, big Marvel movie mm. until, Doctor Strange, that's all hugely exciting. What's the most um, the most famous person you've got to fake punch or kill so far? Or are you um, always just actually, slightly outside? In a, <laughs> usually, I'm I'm slightly outside. And um, uh, however, specifically for Captain America, um, and this unfortunately, like the the, the little bit that I that I shot with this person, um, you can't really see it in the in the yeah. final product. Um, it's not shame it's not entirely clear. Like it looks like she basically just kind of duck and covers. But, um, originally the way we, the original plan or the original vision for this was when this explosion in the UN happens, I don't think I'm yeah. giving away much because well, no, the movie's right. been out for a while. But, Anyone who listens um, to this. Yeah. Has so seen basically, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm imagining. So, so, um, just out of pure coincidence, I would happen to be standing there and they're like, okay, well, we're, we're starting to put our stunt people into this scene. So it's a big UN meeting and there's this big explosion that's going to happen. So we need you guys to like react to the explosion. That was, you know, it's a pretty simple setup, a pretty simple thing to do. So they take me and they sit me right next to Scarlett Johansson. Nice. 
and and I just kind of t- I turn I turn to my left and oh my god that's Scarlett Johansson okay okay not a problem just just stay calm it's <laughs> she's cool. just a regular person like everyone else stay cool yeah just stay cool and um and she was just the nicest person to to work with she was very personable she was professional um and it was a very simple thing that we had to do she basically kind of when she kind of went to duck and cover from the explosion, she sort of grabbed me by the arm and, and sort of took me down with her as if she was mm. trying to sort of shield me from this blast because I'm the closest person that she can save and, and she's going to try and save me. Um, so that was the idea. But um, again, you can't, you don't, it happens so fast and you don't really yeah, see so, it um, yeah. uh, in the final film, which is unfortunate, but nature it, of the business, isn't it? <laughs> all yeah, all the time. It definitely yeah is but um she's probably the biggest name i've i've worked with and happy to say that she was just s- such a such a nice person and so um she knew exactly what to do she was very safe about everything she was extremely professional um and it was talking to her was t- like just talking with an, a normal person she had absolutely no <laughs> ego yeah. she was just there to do her job like everybody else and she seemed very happy to be there she you know we sat and chatted for a little bit before the scene went on and um it was it was uh, it was uh gratifying for me to be like wow you're one of the biggest stars in hollywood right now and just such a down-to-earth person it was she she was fantastic i i really enjoyed working with her so i am um, glad to hear it yeah big big uh big thumbs yeah i i was glad to see that too so scarlett johansson um, top-notch person to work for and to work with. Excellent. Next up from you, we have a pick from a game that I very recently played through for the first time. Uh, and uh, and I've started a second playthrough. People who've played the game will know that that's kind of part of the deal. Um, so this is from mm. Undertale. I think we spoke about this. Uh, this is one of the games we did speak about on Twitter, you and I, um, because mm. my my first few hours, I was a little nonplussed. Um, and I know this game's yeah. got so much love. Um, and you were one of those people who obviously adored the game. Um, and it's definitely a game I hope we'll cover on the other podcast definitely. Um, in the future because um, there's so much to say about it. But you, you, it obviously resonated with you anyway. Tell us how and why. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I guess it, it kind of wouldn't be a, a sound of play uh, request for me if I didn't have a, a song from Undertale on here. But, um, yeah, I, I do remember that, Leon, when you were saying that um, you had some some issues with the game. You're like, you know, I just don't. I don't see it. I, I don't, I don't, it almost like I, I suppose there's supposed to be a joke here and I'm just not in on yeah, the joke like or, or something. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I fell head over heels for Undertale, but I will be the first person to admit this is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Not everybody is going to um, go crazy for it. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there that played it and went, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I don't get what mm. all the hype is about. And that's, I think that's totally fair. Um, Absolutely. Not yeah. every, you know, not everything is going to be to everyone's taste. And I, I, I can, I, I understand that frustration when something is so huge and people seem to um, just unconditionally love it and you're not that into it. I kind of went through the same thing with The Last of Us when it came out, where right. I was just like, sure. Ah, uh, I want to love this game, and I just, ugh, I'm mm. just not with everybody else. Like, 
there are parts of it that I appreciate, but overall I'm just, I'm not, I'm not in it and I don't see what everybody else sees. And, and mm. for a game that I wanted to love so much, it was very frustrating to be one of those people that was like, yeah, yep. Just wasn't that into it. And <laughs> yeah. so I, yeah. I completely understand, um, if, if somebody felt that way about undertale, um, one of the reasons why I think, um, this game specifically um, hit so close to home, as it were, um, is because, as I as I kind of mentioned a little bit before, I grew up with a lot of you know what we think of as like the classic JRPGs, um, mm. Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Earthbound, um, Super Mario RPG, The Legend of Zelda games. Um, those were the games that I really like, grew up with, and just adored like they weren't you know like i can pick up a sonic game and play it and have fun with it but those these were the games that really spoke to me they really put me through an experience that that changed me in a lot of ways um Mm. and undertale made me re-experience all of that all over again that was that was kind of the the feeling that i had while playing this game was like Man, this feels like I'm playing Earthbound again. It makes me, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm experiencing those same, uh, that same kind of feeling as I did when I was playing Final Fantasy VI or Chrono Trigger, etc. So, for those reasons, for for me, anyway, Undertale struck a very personal chord. And I mm. think for anybody else that had a similar experience or had that similar sort of feeling you know, playing those types of games when they were a kid or, or even, you know, later in their adult years, they probably had a very similar experience when they were playing Undertale. And I think that is, that's one of the big um, reasons for its appeal, but also um, even just seeing it on it on its own and, and, you know, experiencing, experiencing it on its own outside of any of this other, you know, backstory. <laughs> um, it is, it's kind of deceptively simple. It seems very, um, it seems very straightforward on the surface, but it's one of those games where the deeper you get into it and the more you kind of think about it and, and go into these battles and, and hear what all these characters have to say. Mm. And uh, you, you kind of start to discover that there's a lot more going on under this, under the surface. Um, and, and, I'm, I'm, has that been um, your experience, or are you still kind of at that point where you're like, I don't understand why people love this game? <laughs> I warmed to it somewhat in the second half of my first playthrough. Um, not not to the extent that I could still uh, I could understand why the critics gave you know sort of average review score of ninety four percent. I was still thinking, well, okay, it's cute and it's nice and whatever. But um, I was advised by uh, another. Uh, follower on Twitter to because I said I'd played it through mainly pacifistically even on my first play just out of that's the way I played mm. it um, but I'd but I'd ended up killing like two or three characters which changes your ending obviously um, so he suggested that I go back and play it 100% pacifist uh, run uh, and then see how I feel once I've done that so I'm going to do that um, but certainly mm. my my the second half was uh, preferable to the first half, and 
I'm wondering if if my feelings towards it keep growing at the same level, then probably by the end of my genocide run, I'll I'll feel like as everyone else does about the game. But um, I'm still working mm. on it. But I I want to keep playing it because you might. It's, I, it's a curio. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a. I almost I almost kind of wish that person hadn't said that to you because like to me, mm. it's it's almost a more um, it's almost a more honest experience if you play it just the way that you would play it so if your impulse yeah. was to yeah. um yeah. oh there's, there's a fight but so i'm gonna fight because that's what you do in every other rpg or if yeah. you did it by accident because that's that happened to me a couple of times where just out of like oh i saw the fight button and i just oh shoot i hit it by accident i didn't mean to kill this creature yeah. that yeah. happens sometimes and um, yeah. it does yeah. slightly alter your playthrough but I think in the in the rules, quote unquote, of the of the mm. game, you are allowed to make a couple of mistakes like that. Like minor mistakes like that are not going to. Oh, okay, right. I'm pretty sure that if you make a couple of mistakes like that, they'll forgive it. It's I see. more willingly going through the game and killing everything that the other monsters start to see you as like, oh, this person's actually a threat now, and yeah. we have to be very wary of this person and. Mm. And they're not they're not a good person. Mm. The game sort of turns on you is when it's like, okay, this is more than just a mistake. This is more than just accidentally hitting yeah. the fight button or, yeah. or or not understanding how to um solve how to get out of this fight any other way. Now it's a willful thing, and now the the narrative is going to change. That's that's something I, I personally really like about Undertale. Mm. I like that it has those kind of two different tracks that you can take and that the narrative does change so completely um, as you go through it. Um, I, I thought that was a kind of a neat idea. I did play this very pacifist, and um, right, and, and that's usually how I would. But that's normally how I would play something like, um, yeah. like going back to uh, Dragon Age for for instance. Um, I always try to spare as many people as I can. Um, you know, in oh, Mass okay. Effect, I was always like the you know super paragon. Um, I always wanted yeah. to be like, you know, the upstanding person. I was like, if we can find a way out of the situation without having to take any lives, that's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm a pacifist myself. So <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, if we can avoid any conflicts, if we can avoid any wars, that's what we're going to do. So this is, this was kind of a nice departure from the typical RPG. It's like, oh, I can actually act out my pacifist, you know, feelings yeah. in this. However, mm. It's going to be a little bit more work. It's going to take some more time. It's going to be, you know, you may you may fail a couple of times going the, the merciful route because mm. the fights are almost like these little mini puzzles. You have puzzles, to kind of yeah. work out what each creature wants or needs from, from you in order to allow you to take mercy on them in order for them to say, all right, I've let down my guard enough for you to actually let me go mm. you have to puzzle that out for yourself yeah. which is yeah. is kind of neat i i like i think it makes for a much yeah. more interesting gameplay it makes for a much more um compelling narrative mm. so um so going back no, to I the agree. song it's that i've definitely very I've clever. chosen yes yeah sure <laughs> now that now that i have yeah now that i've uh uh you know waxed philosophical on uh, on undertale because i love this game um um so my my previous I've made for um, Sound of Creatures that I've I've asked for certain tracks from this game, they've all been these sort of 
bombastic, epic, sort of defining pieces of music. This time around, I kind of wanted to shed light on kind of the softer side of Undertale because there are some really beautiful, um, uh, slower, um, like very, very sparse piano strings pieces um, kind of scattered throughout the game. Um, so this track called It's Raining Somewhere is a, a nice example of that. It's almost like a, it almost has a feel to it. It's got this very nice um, piano introduction, goes on to, um, I think it's almost like a xylophone um, at one point. Mm. Uh, throughout very harmonic um uh very melodic piece of music it's very calm very laid back um and it kind of marks i think one of the most important um moments in the game um so looking back to something like megalovania if that represents the worst possible relationship you can have with the character sans then um, it's raining somewhere else is kind of the flip side of that. This is yeah. um, this is like the neutral or pacifist outcome where Sands is one of your closest friends and he is um, he sits you down and, and is why he's been helping you throughout the game. So this is sort of like you know megalovania is like the hostile. Um, I'm going to stop you at any by any means necessary. Sands. It's rare else is the kinder I need to I need to explain to you why I'm helping you side of Sans. Um, it's a very it's a pretty big departure from his character. This fun loving jokester sort of a character. He's always laughing. He's always cracking these terrible puns throughout the game. And he's always yeah. he's got that little wink and that on his face. But um, in this scene, he's he kind of takes a little bit of a serious tone and um, he uh, basically explains to you that um, he has, he's befriended this woman who you later find out is Toriel, your, your goat mom, um, the first mm. uh, real caretaker um, in the game. She has made him promise to protect any human who enters the underground. Now that's a pretty significant character moment for Sans because not only, only is he coming right out and admitting that he's been kind of silently watching your back from the sidelines this whole time. He's sort of been your silent protector um, throughout the whole game. But it's it, it's totally an admission of guilt. He right out that if Toriel hadn't asked him to help you, he would have killed you himself, or he would have mm. delivered you to somebody that would have destroyed you. Whether Undyne, whether it was handing you over directly to um, to um, Asgore Dreamer, the king of, of the underground that's trying to take your soul, or, or even giving you over to his brother Pyrus. Um, he's basically telling you without Toriel's um, making him promise to take care of you, you would be dead where you stand. And um, it's it's a very, very dark turn. And like he's telling this very sweet um, story and this very heartfelt thing. And then, oh, by the way, I totally would have killed you if it hadn't been for this person mm. person asking me not to. Also, more than implying that he was directly involved with destroying all of the previous humans that came before your arrival, because the whole mm. um, setup for for this story, you know, that you're told throughout the game is the monsters need seven human souls to break down this magical barrier to escape from the underground to get back to the surface and, you know, back to where they're kind of intermingling with humans. 
Asgore Dreamer has collected six of them. He needs one more. You're that one more. And yep. Sans easily could have turned you over to him at any time and completed his mission. And he doesn't do it. He decides to be merciful. He decides to spare you. And that was like, this scene completely blew my mind. I was like, oh my hmm. God. Uh, Sans is, is, you know, not only has he been merciful to us, but this is the reason why we're, we're here. Like, this is the whole reason why we're sitting down and ha having this conversation because he saw the mercy in us as well. If you got to this point, it means that you have spared all the monsters. You've been merciful, merciful to everyone. And that has helped him in his mission to, to save you. Um, so it's this really, really uh, beautiful moment. So, and it's the side of Sans we haven't seen before when he's coming up with this like this sad and, and dark confession to you. Um, so it's a it's a pretty big moment, and I think the song is very appropriately bittersweet, um, even sort of melancholic at times, um, which I think is is pretty appropriate for the scene and also um, also for Sans. It has this very quiet sort of reflective pace um and uh it's it's just a gorgeous piece of music um and hand, you know hats off to toby fox for basically writing all of the music to this game this is pretty much you know almost entirely the work of of one man which is yeah it's amazing. kind of amazing mm. <laughs> to, to think about that he wrote all of this music mm -hmm. so um so yeah, I think um, this this is a good representation of the softer side of, of Undertale's um, soundtrack. So um, it's called "It's Raining Somewhere Else," and for once, people can just kind of sit back and relax and <laughs> just kind of enjoy a, a more melodic tune from from this uh, from this composition. So.
raining <laughs> somewhere else by Toby Fox, the multi-talented Toby Fox. And uh, we have something else. Uh, our penultimate tune on this sound of play is another request from a, uh, a more obscure, but also a PC RPG, this time of French origin. This is requested by uh, Jay Malmis, who says, who likes strange? I like strange. Off, or OFF, I'm not actually sure, is a French RPG from the mind of one Mortis Ghost and is easiest explained as being the anti-Earthbound. The game is made almost entirely by two people, the aforementioned Mr. Ghost and composer alias Conrad Coldwood. Not sure about any of their real names. The game itself is very clearly made by people who are artists first and game <laughs> devs second, since the actual RPG mechanics are the game's least interesting aspect. What the game does really well, the imaginative twisted places you visit and the people you meet there. The music is appropriately twisted. The main battle theme, Pepper Steak, is unforgettable to me. Off, or OFF, is actually a free game, so nobody's got a good reason not to at least try it. Remember, please venture over to our forum at canarince.com slash forum or follow us on Twitter at canarince. Use the hashtag sound of play if you like. You can also go to our Facebook page. Give it a like, facebook.com slash canarince. Do request there if you want. Uh, and we'll continue to include a selection in the playlist for each regular podcast. Please subscribe to Sound of Play. Leave us an iTunes review or rating or wherever else you get the podcast from. We also have a Patreon if you enjoy what we do. Patreon.com slash Rinse and you can support us with a dollar a month or whatever you can afford for the many hours we put into the many hours that we give to you. So before we hear about your last track, uh, I want to thank Maya Santandrea for joining me on this Sound of Play. And... Uh, I suppose I don't know if you've got anything specific to plug, um, but certainly we'd be interested to know uh, what we can see you in coming up. I uh, a, a little bird tells me, yes, it's IMDb. Uh, the Baywatch might be in your future. Oh yes, um, that was something that 
I worked on earlier this year. I think. Sure. It's not out yet. I think it has a. No, I think it has a, a release set for next year. Um, yeah, that's right. Certainly, there's the the Walking Dead, which I'm sure I don't want to tell people to watch because everybody watches that show. Um, yep. And then uh, there's also a film coming out in February, I believe, that's called uh, Sleepless. It stars Jamie Foxx, and I was only in a little bit of of the scenes for it, but it looks to be pretty jam-packed with action. So I think awesome. that might be a good one to go if you're looking for like a good um, kind of popcorn action film, uh, so to speak. Sure. Um, so it has, should have some good action scenes in it. And Jamie Foxx is an excellent actor. Uh, mm. Really, uh, he's, he's an amazing guy. He's a really, truly amazing guy. And um, Good singer too. That might be one to have on your radar as well. Yeah, it's called, uh, it's called Sleepless. So you can look out for that sometime early 2017 it's going to be a february or march release probably fabulous and uh you were in the uh did a bit in the nice guys as well which was quite a big hit this summer oh yes um i actually just got around to watching that not that long long ago um mm. i i saw it on a on a plane when i was uh on a on a flight from los angeles not that long ago and I was really impressed by how it came mm. out. Like I wasn't really expecting much from, cause I didn't really know much about it when, um, when I was filming it, but it's really funny. It's yeah. hugely entertaining. And just, I, I enjoyed watching it a lot. And I think, um, I think, uh, listeners would probably get a kick out of it too. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, Shane Black. I mean, that you know, lethal weapon again was one predator. of those. Shane Black is great. Um, and that was another one of those things where it was like I was kind of off in the background somewhere, and the scenes that I was um, that I was hired for, you can't really see all that much. Oh. Um, <laughs> however, I was I was still credited in it, so go figure. One of the scenes where I was like, ah, you can't really see what I did, but I still got the credit for it. And overall, yeah. it's it's a really fun movie. So I mm. I actually really enjoyed it. That's something I would absolutely recommend um for people to watch fab right and so your last pick for us a, a, an appropriate uh, closing to a sound of play nobuo uematsu and uh, you've ob- obviously you've mentioned your love of square enix and final fantasy uh, is is final fantasy 6 top of mm-hmm. your your pile final fantasy 6 is unequivocally my favorite video game of all time Right. This is this is the absolute will ever ever beat the six. As much as there are some yeah. games that have come in years that have come very close, including Undertale, including things like you know the Mass Effect games and Bioshock and Bloodborne and and stuff like that. Um, mm. Nothing in my mind will ever ever top Final Fantasy VI. Um, it's I love damn near every pixel of that game. Um, um, I love the characters. I love the story, the environments, the monsters, the combat system, um, and especially the music. I mean, I don't, I don't think I need to sing the Nobu Uematsu. He is so well known and so universally beloved um, for good reason. I would say he's he's like the John Williams of video games. Um, sure, he's just had such a, a, a and so many like legendary, iconic landmarks of gaming music it's kind of uh it's kind of difficult to to 
you know, center in on, on just one because he has so many greats out there um, from so many different games, not just in Final Fantasy, but in uh, multiple series. Um, but I chose Terrorist Theme um, because this is, this is one of my all-time tracks. It's basically the main theme song of, um, of Final Fantasy VI, and I cho chose an arrangement that Umatsu wrote specifically for the Distant Worlds concerts. So this was, yeah. um, this was something that he put together um, specifically to be performed by a full orchestra, by you know, a full orchestra and choir with real instruments. And to me, I think this is the way that he kind of always meant this music to be heard and experienced, which is kind of my, my saying, let's take a look like an orchestrated version of it to really, you know, hear all of the, the great mm. instrumentation to really feel the, the size and the weight of it. It really comes out when it's put to real um, musicians and a real symphony. Um, I, the flute are, they start out in this very sad, um, very fragile tone almost, um, but there's a marching rhythm that sort of carries um, this this theme that struggles with this huge identity crisis throughout the entire game. She's also a soldier, and she has the strength and resolve of a soldier to carry on and to continue her quest in spite of any of her um, feelings or of, um, of doubt or fear. So regardless of that, she's going to continue marching on like a, like a good soldier. Um, I also really love the brass section in this particular arrangement. Um, there's a drive in this that comes into the sound, and you get a sense that even though these characters are faced with this, what seems like an impossible task, there's just that little glimmer of hope that they're going to that they're going to come out on top and that they're going to be successful in their mission. Um, so this is just a, 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 such a gorgeous piece of music. Um, if uh, if anybody out there is is a particular fan of, of Final Fantasy or even just the music, um, I highly recommend the the Distant Worlds albums. And um, if you get a chance. If you see that they're, if you look them up and see that they're playing a concert anywhere nearby you, it is a absolutely unforgettable, mind blowing experience. It is so moving and and unbelievable. Um, so that I highly recommend um, seeking out one of those um, one of those concerts if you can, if they're playing somewhere near you. Um, but even just the albums to hear all of this iconic music done with a full orchestra with real instruments. It just sounds so amazing. It sounds beautiful. So um, that would be kind of a, a closing recommendation for me is to to seek out the distant the distant worlds um, arrangements of these songs because there's there's some really good stuff in there and it sounds fantastic. Super. Thank you very much for joining me, Maya. Um, you have uh, an open invitation if we do cover Undertale in the next uh, volume of the podcast on Kane and Rince. Uh, you'll have to be you'll have to be our guest panelist because you obviously got a lot to, I, to say uh, about I that. I absolutely would love to because I could talk for hours about that game, as you no doubt could probably tell. Um, but yes, that's what we need. Yeah, I'll I'll be there. All right, absolutely. and uh, and. 
well done for having the coolest job of any guest on Cane and Rinse or Sound of Play so far. And uh, yeah, stay safe. <laughs> keep keep uh, hitting people and I, going on fire. <laughs> I certainly will. I will. I'll be safe out there. And uh, th- and thanks again, Leon, for for having me. This has been a lot of fun and uh, really enjoyed uh, talking some game music with you. This has been really cool. You're welcome. All right, let's close with Terra's theme by Uematsu, of course, and performed in this case by Arnie Roth and the Metropolitan Festival Orchestra and Choir. Until next time. <laughs>